Wounds are infectious Like a dog scratched ear But pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. I am darkness, I am death, vengeance and fury, fire and blood. I am Michael, actually. Uh, welcome to the podcast about being human. Now, before we get on to my chat with Alice about the penultimate episode of Series 1, uh, let's get the admin out of the way. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Tumblr, which I don't think I've mentioned before, and uh, the banner of the Box Tunnel Survivors Group. I am on Twitter as the Box Tunnel Pod. And also, if you would like to be an honorary old one and come on the show and discuss an episode of Being Human, or if you want to contact me about anything else, just contact boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. It's time for us now to go off the chosen path as me and Alice chat about where the wild things are. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Alice. Hello. <laughs> You're quite a geek about being human. And so much so that we thought that you ran some parody spoof accounts. We were convinced on in the fandom that you were Mr. Rook. <laughs> now is your time to confess that you were Mr. Rook. I, I cannot confirm nor deny. Yeah, you <laughs> see. Now you're a bit of a... This is a 42-year-old man trying to say this and it's going to sound rubbish. You're a bit of a fashionista. Maybe. You like your style. <laughs> you, you make your own clothes. Yeah. What would you call it? You kind of go for the vintage look, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I really like, I like the, all the vintage stuff and make, like I say, minted knitwear is my biggest thing, but I've started like since lockdown doing a lot more sewing. But yeah, kind yeah. of try and dress like a ghost, really, I think is my vibe. <laughs> a ghost from the 50s. Yeah, or lo- lots of different sort of eras as well, mix and match. What would, you, what would your favourite era be? I think the thir- 1930s. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's like this um, sort of. I had like the whole Hollywood thing going on, and it's like quite an exciting time, really, for fashion. I asked you for your three most stylish supernatural characters ever. Yeah, it was quite a tricky one. I think I could very easily just gone for all vampires, but I sort of thought for so for number three, I've gone for the the Morgus, uh, Amy Dyer from In the Flesh. So oh. Yeah, wow, she yeah. has that kind of 50s look. Her Hers is all vintage, and I think it's quite an important part of her character arc. It's like all her nan's old clothes. So she was like one of the first ones I sort of thought of. Then I've got Nadia from What We Do in the Shadows, the TV series. Yeah. yeah. So she's quite good with all her accessories, and I think the fourth series is airing at the moment, so she's kind of, her style just keeps going up and up as well. And then like I think the last one came with, it's a slight slightly cheating because i'd like to nominate the whole sort of bike gang from the lost boys oh okay because i just think like their whole aesthetic like the you know i love the film anyway but it's just something else that adds to it and i mean i think like Kiefer sutherland's mullet and it kind of um (laughs) it's like the opposite of stylish but it is very iconic i think it's gone so beyond stylish that it's actually cool yeah 
and um, I think Alex Windsor's character in it has like this really funky patchwork jacket, and yeah, I just kind of love that look. Yeah, The Lost Boys is definitely kind of an iconic 80s film that is not just in style, but also in terms of its, you know, its legend now. It's become such a thing over the years now. Hasn't yeah. It? It's built up more of a fan base. Um, in terms of being human then, how did you get into the show initially? So I've sort of like, um, literally just saw the very first teaser trailer, which I can't find anywhere online at the moment. Look like the three of them walking up the street and like they've lost their keys and Annie walks through the goes straight through the door to let them in. Mm. So we kind of caught that and I was like I've always loved anything sort of supernatural vampires and it was just yeah straight from when it first aired and then like from series three I kind of got into that like I found the Becoming Human blog but I was just sort of a lurker then and kind of joined the blog properly in series four so I've just sort of stuck with it throughout. So did you initially watch series one live? Yeah, or? I watched. Yeah, ended up watching all of them live. Yeah. So I think like because I was sort of fourteen at the time that aired, and um, quite a few people that I was at school with were like watching it as well. So we were kind of quoting it back to each other. Do you identify as a vampire, a werewolf, or a ghost? Well, I think as much as I love vampires, like I said, I dress like a ghost. I'd probably like have to say ghost for sure. Like um, um, university and work and stuff. I've always ended up accidentally scaring housemates so because apparently I would walk really quietly so I just, like, just didn't expect me to be in the room I'd just sneak up on people so I think I'd make quite a good ghost. So what way do you define yourself as like dressing as a ghost? Well um, lots of big cardigans and I love my Doc Martens as well so a little bit of Alex's style but also as I said earlier just lots of weird sort of vintage like I think you could easily get mistaken for of dying in a very different era <laughs> <laughs> if you died today what do you think your unfinished business would be i think it'd probably be a bit like um sarah said when she was talking for the third episode like i have a lot of craft projects as we've already sort of mentioned so i've got enough fabric and yarn and things to carry on making stuff for quite a while also, like, I think I've got um, some tickets to see Florence and the Machine in November. I think that's like a proper um, bucket list thing for me. So I think going to, getting to see that concert as well would probably be a bit of an unfinished business moment. Well, you could be, even if you were a ghost, you could just lurk backstage. No one would notice you. You'd just creep up on Florence. Yeah, do like um, Pearl and Leo and they snuck into the front row. <laughs> <laughs> Okay then, we'll crack on with episode 5 of series 1, Where the Wild Things Are. It was written by Toby Whithouse and directed by Colin Teague. And as well as the main set of characters we've had for series 1, they are joined by Claire Higgins, who plays Josie. Now we start with Lauren, who is hanging by the funeral parlour. Once a goth, always a goth, I suppose. And George, he is introducing us to the episode again. He says, we meet people and fall in love. And when we part, we, they leave marks for us and to remember them by. Our lovers sculpt us, they define us, for better or worse. I'm not sure I agree with that. Earlier in the series, he said to Annie, like, nobody owns anyone. And that's almost a kind of a statement that's saying that we are defined by being with people. We see Owen's false shock as he sees Annie's body in the morgue, that sinister look again. I don't know what it is about the speech. I'm not quite sure of it. I think because... I know what it's trying to do. It's trying to equate 
the abuse, I mean, Nina's suffered abuse, and we see a close-up of her getting changed in the scars. Lauren suffered abuse, Annie suffered abuse, and it's just equating them to all together. But I think it's, I think it's a bit root one, because then he says, they haunt us like ghosts. So, and then literally at that moment, Owen thinks he sees a reflection of Annie in the house and then walks out. It's quite a dark um, monologue for the the start of the episodes. It's like it does set the tone for like what's to come. I thought as well, there's a little tiny bit of foreshadowing there, really. With like, I know it's focusing on um, Nina's burns from like whatever past relationship, but just having George and Nina together, I wondered if there was something there for the next episodes. Yeah, it's. It's a difficult thing, but I I feel like pretty much all they can say in the open monologues has been said now, yeah. and I, I I know they're tying it up, but obviously they dropped doing that by series two. But this is this is being ultra critical. Yeah, I thought it was like the <laughs> least sort of memorable one, maybe of series yes. one. Yeah, yeah. I think when I was rewatching it, I was a bit like, oh, I don't really nothing stands out about this one, I suppose. Then George comes in with a jar of jam. It's their neighbour's way of apologising about the whole mudslinging pedo thing. Annie blurts out, I'm going to haunt Owen. And she thinks that her unsolved business is actually to haunt Owen and get him to confess. Now, George is actually quite calm about this and offers to help. Go on. No, I was going to say, I think it's a really, like, quite a good episode for George and Annie's friendship together. And you see, like, it's quite sweet when he says, like, I don't want you to go. Because of where Mitchell goes in this episode, it brings those two closer together. Yeah, definitely. Back at the funeral parlour of Vamp Central, as it's called, uh, Herrick is holding forth to everyone and has has them all in the palm of his hands. Uh, He is regaling a story of Mitchell and himself carrying out a gruesome murder and it results in the awful gag, Tomb Service. We actually get this, to see this in a flashback, in series three i've totally forgotten that they set this up in series one so obviously when they were thinking about having a flashback with herrick in series three they thought wow we've described this let's let's actually put pictures to it yeah and they said like i think then oh she's coming by later as well and the the hand of that whole argument in series three wasn't there about mitchell wanting to recruit her so maybe maybe they relented at the end Eric gives a mantra, nobody gets left behind. And this bit, I always expect him to break into Ohana means family and family means you stick together. It's just got that kind of vibrant bit. I guess Mitchell is kind of like Stitch. <laughs> well, I... He's cute He's cute and vicious. <laughs> I sort of Googled it because I thought it that nobody gets left behind sounded so familiar. And it's been used in government policies for education and employment and health and so many different things and I just wondered if it was too late for to put Herrick forward for the Tory leadership <laughs> it'd be the perfect uh, much, <laughs> much as Herrick is a bad man he's not a Tory yeah it's it's quite a cuddly slogan little slogan for Herrick isn't it yeah it's, it, it doesn't quite suit you know the whole world domination vibe it's definitely a spin on it isn't there Lauren, who is watching in with a face of thunder, chips in as she questions why their base is a funeral parlour. Aren't we skirting on a little a little too close to cliche here? And Herrick explains, after the recruits die, they come here, but it's more. there's more to it than that. 
Our very existence is a union of life and death. Cemeteries, hospitals, funeral parlours are all places where the two worlds meet and overlap. Do you feel at home here? These are our churches. And then Lauren responds, plus there's plenty of room for storage, and I don't think she's talking about finding somewhere to put her shoes. Yeah, there's always little hints, isn't there, that you kind of notice watching back that she gives throughout the episode to what Mitchell sort of discovers later. And at this stage, Herrick has no time for her. And Mitchell is kind of happy to be back, so he's not really paying attention to what she has to say either. At the Pink House, Annie's running through all the versions of how she would haunt Owen. And George asks the most important questions. What would Patrick Swayze do? Uh, probably sculpt some clay. I wonder if they could get a pottery wheeling. <laughs> she says she wants Owen to confess. I am darkness, I am death, and she's convinced Owen will see her, but it's not just a confession she wants, she wants to scare him, to make him cry and beg and scream. It's not just about justice, it's more jagged than that. And she says, is that wrong? And George says, we could need a mic drop moment here, not everything about being human is nice. I mean, if you could have one phrase to describe like the whole series, that's it, isn't it? We cut to Mitchell being not very inconspicuous outside the hospital and he invites Herrick in. Does he even need an, uh, an invitation to get in the hospital? That's what I wondered as well. Because <laughs> he'd like walked into the... He'd been in the front of the hospital before. He has been there before. Yeah. We assume he's not just stood out 20 yards away from reception going, Oh, invite me in. <laughs> I think it's just to, to show that they're yeah. being underhand, maybe. Mitchell has a patient or victim for him, a man who has just weeks left to live. And while they're in the lift, Herrick talks about how he wanted to be an architect when he was young. Spires and castles and cathedrals. I still dream about that picture book, but now there's this. This cho chose me. Now, this description of buildings, it kind of fits in with what he was saying about the churches being their, you know, the funeral parlour being their church. He views property and ownership of buildings and inanimate objects he views people in the same way he's using them for his own needs in his mind he's not differentiating the two he's just wants control it's sort of like so he kind of he, he talks about his childhood and it almost goes as if it's going to humanize him and then he kind of the way he looks and everything and he's talking about it he kind of realizes that he really truly believes what he's saying Mitchell doesn't really respond, does he? Because he's... Yeah, I think Mitchell thinks he's going to have a human yeah. moment then and he just snaps out of it and then, then go, go, goes and tries to, you know, get a patient from the hospital. At the house, George is ringing Owen and pretending the tap is on the blink again. Now, this tap really should have a credit on IMDb, this series. It's the star of the show. It's all a ruse to get Owen over to the house, of course. Now back at St. Jude's in the canteen, Mitchell sees a woman across the room and approaches her. Hello, Josie, he says. And we learn that they clearly have a connection despite not seeing each other in years. We learn that her husband has died and they're exchanging memories of the Clifton Hotel and being Mr. and Mrs. McCartney. Uh, probably the first proper time we see in the series him matched up with someone properly from his past who has aged. So yeah, and they have like that chemistry straight that. away, don't they? Like you can really believe that they were friends. They've done it in a way that they've not made... It would have been probably creepy yeah. if they'd made her a 90-year-old woman. I think, yeah, it's just like the perfect <laughs> sort of age difference, isn't it? Like, you get the idea, but yeah, it's not gone past 
into the creepiness. George approaches and wants a word with Mitchell, and Big Bad John introduces her as the used to date, and George gives a confused expression, and he clarifies, in the 60s. George shuffles away, and they continue. Josie has been diagnosed with lung cancer, and she says, look at you, frozen like a photograph, and they hold hands. It's clear that their reunion is going to be quite brief. This bit, the next bit, I love the kicking of the strings in the next bit. And it turns from that kind of like tender sweet moment to Owen walking up to the house. He lets himself in, discovers the tap, is fine, but he has more to worry about because as he goes to leave, Annie is standing there, right in front of him. And she says, hello you, what would you do in this instance? I'm not saying you would have killed a partner. If an ex who was dead suddenly appeared in front of you. I think I'd probably react a bit more like Janie Harris than (laughs) than Owen. I think I'd be a bit more shocked. Yeah. He falls to the floor and she hovers over him with the prepared sweet speech. I am darkness. I am death. Vengeance, fury, fire and blood. (laughs) Then it kind of loses its momentum. Diamonds, diamonds and bones, sapphire and steel. (laughs) Diamonds and bones. Not threatening, Annie. And then she hovers, confess. And he's just on the floor in disbelief and she walks away. Again, this is such a an amazing moment on screen where you think she's done what she needs to and from the from around the corner Owen hollers, Hey Annie, is that the best you've got? And then he I think it's almost like because he's not come to any physical harm and she starts to walk away, kind of it, it gets brave again, doesn't it? I think he's so used to have been putting Annie down for years and years. It just like he falls straight back into it. Yeah, and I guess physicality yeah. is probably is the language he understands. Yeah, if she had been violent towards him or thrown shit at him, but poltergeist did something, that would that would have cut through, but. She's not made any more impression in death by doing that speech than she did alive. Because he can just talk over her, he can just manipulate her. Yeah, and use probably all the techniques he used to. He says, I knew it, I fucking knew it, all that shit happening at my house. I thought it was just guilt. Yeah, this is what we've been teasing really small doses. This is full-on nasty Owen now. I should have known even death wouldn't have been a match for one of your sulks. I mean, that's what this is, isn't it? It's the Isle of White all over again. Yeah, and as I said, that's like the first um, mention of the Isle of Wight, isn't it? Because I think it comes, that comes back again in the series to be. It's just a shift in dynamic, isn't it? And he suddenly looks deflated, deflated and Owen is picking on the carcass of the confidence yet again. How does this work? Spit it out, and this moment. Um, what a performance, again. This is what I wish the episode had been called. He says, quiet as the grave. And that little nasty look. He's just like, like you see, just get full line. evil Owen in this. I think he's almost, well, it's equally as evil as Herrick, but in maybe in a different way. Yeah, yeah, he just. Yeah. I mean, he alludes, alludes to it later. He's, he feels invincible, doesn't he? He's, he's, he feels he's got away with it. So, yeah, he picks up his coat and says, I think we're done here. And I should charge rent for free. Yeah. Always on the lookout for money, a landlord. At the parlour, Mitchell and Herrick are having a romantic dinner for two over a dead body. They need someone here for when he wakes up. The things I've seen in between, Mitchell says. Uh, that kind of alludes to the men with sticks and rope. 
And then he chances his arm, putting Josie in Herrick's sights. Herrick says he will have a word with her. And Lauren, of course, doing what she does best, watching on in disgust, advises Mitchell not to go there. But their conversation is rudely interrupted by a vampire rising as Duncan shoots Bolt upright. I wonder with them, like, Herrick agreeing to sort of talk to Josie as well, if it's a little bit of a, a favour to Mitchell... It shows his sort of soft box. He's got this whole thing about the occupations of people and he's trying to kind of recruit specific people and he sort of talks, he'll talk to this dance teacher just because it's what Mitchell's asked. But also, like I say, because Lauren's come in the back at that point and it's almost to make her jealous and show that Mitchell's got somebody else that he's interested in. Yeah, he does ask what she does. Yeah. He said, oh, well, she was a dancer when I knew her and he kind of pulls the face, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, well, come the revolution, we all need to learn how to dance. Yeah, he's doing it as a favour, really, isn't he? But, you know, and he's trying to get blood. the numbers up. What's he being fussy about? Annie and George are having a post-mortem, that's a good joke, on the haunting of Owen House. The next plan Annie has up her sleeve is to go to Janie Harris and tell her. But Mitchell comes in distracted, and he's not paying any blind bit of attention to what Annie has to say. George's powerful methods of deduction strike and he says where have you been not always at work and then all of a sudden he comes to you're back with the vampires again aren't you clearly just just distracted says it's different now it's voluntary no one's being forced to do anything and and annie and george are outraged yeah most of humanity still points at planes now this is an example of i mentioned it previously copying herrick's lines that's a line that herrick later says Mitchell does it well in the in the same way that Seth copies Herrick and just does it all completely wrong. It's just another good example of how Herrick's a leader and how they all follow what he says. And it's almost like going back to George and Tully in that episode that you kind of like. I think we hear the points of planes later in a series, but um, yeah, you get that thing that Mitchell sort of become his little mini me for at least this episode. Exactly. Yeah. And and I guess the roles are reversed because yeah. it's George and Annie who are going to save him this time. Uh, he says, the way you talk about the how charming they are, how benign, like they're Howard from the fucking Halifax. <laughs> they're stupid and fuggish and cruel and we will never be like them. He, and he says this, brandishing a knife, looking fuggish and cruel. They are the monsters. Uh, and then he just storms away with a sandwich or whatever, <laughs> whatever the hell he's meant to. That's right, I'd probably never equated it to that before, but it is kind of him having a mini Herrick moment, isn't it? Yeah, and like I think through the whole episode you just see how different Mitchell is with the influence of like the other vampires. And again, it's it's all a prime example of where Mitchell goes throughout the whole stint on being human, is he just doesn't tell the truth. Even when he's admitted, yes, I'm back with the vampires... He's still not giving all the information. He's like trying to justify it probably to himself as much as to George and Annie. Okay, so the next day, day, Herrick is trying to charm Josie on the bridge and Mitchell tries to coax this along too. He says it will end war. It will end all famine, all war, and she alludes to the fact she'd be still be frozen where she is at her age and not in her prime. She says being human means being mortal. It means dying. He claims it's evolution, and Josie quips, never a birth, never a death, that's not evolution, that's a full stop. And she is pretty correct on that one. 
I just love how she like cuts straight through Herrick's bullshit and she just sees straight through him and I think if Josie had hung around for a bit longer um, you know there wouldn't have been any plot for the rest of the series so she kind of kind of had to let her story end quite quickly I think because she would have kept Mitchell from making some silly decisions we go to Owen's house and Annie greets Janie with Janie, it's me, and she proceeds to faint onto the floor. Uh, once she comes round, she screams and runs upstairs in a shoeless panic. Uh, Annie doesn't help with her. If I'd wanted to keep you there, I would have chopped your feet off. <laughs> the worst possible thing she could have said. I think something else I've noticed on the rewatch of this is just before Janie turns up, Annie's holding a thong almost identical to the one that got flushed down the toilet. Yes. You are absolutely right, and I noticed it on this rewatch too. I don't know whether that's intentioned or not. Yeah, and then it's like in the middle of the shot when um, Janie's fainted as well, so it's quite, there's quite a bit of focus on it. I just hadn't noticed it before. Janie is brilliant in this scene. It's, it's so good. Pure panic-stricken act, uh, acting. Uh, she says, but you're dead, and Annie tells Janie the truth. Owen killed me, and then she says, if you tell me that he has never laid a finger on you, never even for a second made you feel scared, then I'll walk away right now. And it seems like Janie is on the verge of saying something until Owen comes home, and she runs down to him. Again, what, yeah. Owen is such a horrible character, but he's so watchable on the screen. It's such a cruel scene, this part, where he's talking like to both of them at the same time. Yeah, he says, I can't see anything. I think you're feeling guilty for what we were doing when she was alive. All the emails and texts, the time at work, in the Lexus, our engagement party. He's just looking straight through Annie while he's, he's hugging Janie and just, I can't see anything. I think like, you see the exact sort of second where he locks eyes with Annie and sort of takes back that control over her, where he's talking and saying all these things. Like You can just see it when it hits home for Annie. And it gets worse because he says she was always so bitter all her life. Bitter towards people that were cleverer than her. People that did something. She would stand at the side, snipe and bitch. Never participate, never risk. She lived the life in a in the he's periphery. Like a ghost. No, just saying, he's just like twisting that knife in, isn't he? And you re it's like he's become extra level. <laughs> it actually, yeah. it's almost like seeing Annie as a ghost. It's, it's given him even more confidence. Yeah, she says, and you really can't see anything? You know what? A little I really wink. can't. And that look, fucking hell. <laughs> it's just awesome. We're over halfway through, and it's the first time Nina appears in this episode. She and George are being top-level cringe with Hello Boyfriend and Hello Girlfriend at work. And also the second thing is she wants the results are in. It turns out he has a smashing ass, And George is about to say, can I point out that you have two amazing... Yeah, another uh, hand gesture, isn't it, about Nina's chest. <laughs> yeah, you have two amazing square breasts. Uh, so yeah, jo Josie pulls him away and she spills all about the recruiting process to George. The vampires are mobilising, they're making it all sound, sound all very new labour, which obviously dates it a bit. But this is an invasion, it's a coup. And Josie, Josie wants to know if George's thing is anything that can help. <laughs> and George kind of goes, no, no, it's just an occasional thing. And she said, oh, well, I thought perhaps you were a wizard or something. 
that just conjures up his image in my head every time of him in like one of those pointy hats and the cloaks and I just I love that line just for that reason. <laughs> also wonder what else um what kind of life Josie had afterwards if she just kept having these sort of dealings with supernaturals. <laughs> trolls. Toby said there would never be trolls in being human, so Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps off screen Josie met a troll. Yeah, so George goes, How big is how serious is this? What are they planning? How bad is it? And she says, Nobody gets left behind. The man said I think what I love about the early series is that human touch. Someone a character like Josie coming in and like almost cutting through what's going on. A bit like Nina Nina soon does. Just cutting through all their supernatural stuff and It's kind of a bit of a reality check, isn't it, for them? Mitchell is walking to the parlour and is greeted by Seth, who is pondering over why the vamps are based in Bristol. And it turns out Richard Turner was the first vampire to lead a double life in in sixteen thirty, and he ran for Parliament and was a slave trader. And uh, Seth says, "All the best stories about you, Mitchell." Everyone else is like, "I got this tramp in a doorway." <laughs> so Mitchell goes on to discover blood-soaked prisoners inside who are used for snacking. Some people have daily lunchables, but the vamps chain people up and have a nibble. I think this is one of those things that um, Inhuman does really well as well, like the horror part. Like, I mean, this episode's quite, got quite a lot of horror in it, but when they don't necessarily need to show it all, like you get the on the sound effects, you get all the screaming, and there's that one line, isn't there, about... Um, there were other people's clothes when we got here. There were toys under the bed. And, like, you don't, like, you just get that whole, whole thing of what's been going on. But you do kind of wonder what Mitchell sort of thought was happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Not the sharpest toy in the box, is it? Like, I think he's been a vampire for 92 years at this point, And most of that time he spent with Herrick. Like, you think he'd be a little bit suspicious. And speaking of which, Herrick enters the room. We were going to tell you, but like so much in life, it all comes down to timing. Uh, so at the house, George charges in in a f- mad panic, and he is desolate on the sofa. He's raiding the kitchen for weapons, but the best he could come up with was a whisk and a phone charger. And he tries to motivate Annie, but she says, I can't, it's beaten me. Owen's won. I can't touch him. I think I, George is like kind of a background character in this episode it's sort of you've got Annie's story and you've got Mitchell's as well but George kind of is like a bit of a hero isn't he sort of gets them all going and manages to keep it like the story moving as well yeah that's true actually he's not yeah he hasn't got his story of the week as such has he no but it's really still important to the the plot cut to them at the undertakers and once again Seth is there to usher them away when he twigs what George is, he barks. What do you want? And then he notices Annie. What the cock is that? I'm a ghost, actually. <laughs> Always one of my favourite lines in the show. Get out. Can you move no, things around and walk from one it. room to another? I'm pretty sure everyone can do that. <laughs> it's just an absolute classic, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's just fucking amazing. And shut it, Digby. The only reason I haven't torn your bastard face off yet is because I've just done the hoovering in it. Oh dear. Seth grabs George by the throat, and if we're talking about inanimate objects getting 
an IMDb credit, then that phone deserves a credit all of itself, just for comedy timing. <laughs> just completely misses as well. Uh, then she whacks him over the back with a chair. Did you just hit me with a chair? Yes. So observant, sir. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so funny. Uh, yes, sorry. What is wrong with you people? That totally fucking hurt. And then Seth fangs up, but is stopped in his track by George's star of David. Then George strikes with a punch. It's good, yeah. Aww. Just everything about the scene is just wonderful. And he goes, "That was pathetic." And Annie's little sigh of disbelief. We were like the world's gayest ninjas. George tries to match her up his voice. Yeah, well, you've got to get used to that. And then she goes, how's your hand? <laughs> really hurts, actually. I think I've bruised a bone. <laughs> it's just that odds, because we know what's go something bad's going inside that building with Mitchell and Herrick, and those two are just prancing about at that, in the reception area. It's one of those things that's like, I don't know how many times I've rewatched like these series, and it just, just still had me absolutely cracking up. <laughs> Uh, so Herrick and Mitchell are having a set two, and Herrick goes, how did you think this was going to be done? A please, a thank you, may I be, be so bold, evolution, uh, yeah, may I be so bold, evolution has casualties, and we and we, then we get a history lesson from Herrick. This is the natural churn of history. Mitchell, we are not good or bad, we're just what happens next. He's very modest, isn't he, Herrick? He's like com comparing himself to Roman emperors and the whole Ottoman Empire as well. <laughs> I never said we wanted 100% conversion. There will always be a portion of humanity kept alive, kept pure. And Mitchell asks why. And he says, well, we've got to eat. It's true. <laughs> well, what about your daily Lunchables? And that's it. So Mitchell, he's a bit slow on the uptake. He twigs. That's what it comes down to. Historical precedents, slogans, it's smoke and mirrors, you just want to feed, you just want to kill. And Herrick, evil grimace, but it feels so nice. There's so many like of these good little just look, evil looks from Herrick in this episode, like you say, it's just that little smile. And... Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because he, he leaves such an impression on this series, but this is the most he's appeared in an episode. He's not... In series one, a hell of a lot in the grand scheme of things, but that that impression he makes. Yeah, every scene that he's in, he just completely like steals. Uh, so Mitchell goes to walk away, but he is blocked. He says, we'll be kind. And Mitchell says he wants his friend to be safe once he's gone. But Herrick ignores, ignores this and promises <laughs> it won't be Seth that kills him. No one needs that indignity. <laughs> yeah. If he's defeated by George and Annie. It's not a fair one. <laughs> I don't think he's got much hope with Mitchell. So Mitchell says, do me a favour afterwards. Don't talk about me the way you do. That's not how I want to be remembered. And yeah, it's Herrick here is clearly prepared to kill Mitchell. And it was almost like the bit of foreshadowing again, isn't it? It's like the whole pull up a chair, break a chair, like sharpen it. It kind of is what happens eventually, isn't it? Between the two of them. You know what? There was something about that that was in the back of my mind. I was thinking, there's something about that in the future, and that's it, isn't it? Like, it always comes down to that. Of course. Enter George with his epic line, who wants some of my chair? And the haphazard escape is underway, but they are soon cornered by Seth. Gets a stake in the heart and Lauren's to blame. She gives Vamps a good name. <laughs> Let's just 
take a minute silence <laughs> for the great Seth. Okay, we're done. Yeah, Seth has carped it, and I love Lauren's line. At least he won't stare at my tits anymore. It's actually, you can't believe that Seth is only in series one. No, it's mad, isn't it? It's mad. Again, it's not much screen time, but everything is gold with him. So they get out of Dodge, uh, but Lauren wants out of the vamp world. She asks Mitchell to stake him. Her guilt at the murders is too much. Thing like with the vampires, the only way you kind of get a good vampire or a dry vampire is like they have to be a proper dead vampire. <laughs> I think a whole speech, it's really like quite tragic, yeah. isn't it? About yeah, that's it. What so, the girl she used to be used to have hay fever and everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if if I. If you if vampires don't get hay fever, which it seems that's not the case, or asthma, <laughs> I'm I want to be a vampire because this June was hellish. <laughs> Just for I, the I'll lack be a vampire any day a week. I don't care about all the guilt. That that one month a, yeah yeah that one month a year is a nightmare. So she asks Mitchell to enter life, uh, and she gets a stake through the heart, and it's not too late. Mitchell gives vamps a bad name. I'm, I'm persisting with this. Yeah, I forgot they did the crackling effect. I think, yeah, it's, where, like, it's when only sort of when vampires sort of the died in main one. ones die or like the named characters, maybe. Yeah, maybe, because I'm sure, like, when it started in. I thought it started in series four, and I didn't like the effect at all. I'm not a fan of the, that effect. I think it looks a bit tacky, but I really, I really liked. The, the smoke effect and the, the aerial shot of that, that, that was much more effective. Because yeah, I think you do get it a bit as well at the end of series three. That's, that's why I didn't want to mention who it was. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, but before before she dies, she does say you have to stop him about Herrick. Obviously, like this, this puts Mitchell back on track, but I think it's a fitting end for Lauren because obviously... She has her redemption, and we lo- we know that she's not the bad person that she was battling against half the series. But I also feel that her story had nowhere else to go after this. That 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 was it. Her story is told. Yeah, it's kind of she's. It kind of moves past that, doesn't it? I suppose for the other series, and we get the similar sorts of things with some different characters in, like say, maybe in series four and. You kind of see it slightly repeated again. Yeah, uh, yeah. She served her purpose and it's moved the story along. She's come out of it not a villain, which it seemed like she would at some stage. Yeah, she's sort of like an antagonist, isn't she? But yeah, she gets, like I say, she gets her redemption. Back at the pink house, Mitchell says thank you to George and off-screen they come up with a plan for Owen. And the next shot, Owen is entering the house. Hi honey, I'm home. And Annie, Mitchell and George are standing there like defenders waiting for a free kick. How did they come up with how they were going to stand? <laughs> yeah, and how how long had they been standing there? <laughs> he said he'd be here in five minutes and then just stood there for half an hour. When Owen clocks all three of them standing there, he says, no. I knew I should have got references. And he's just cocky. He doesn't care anymore. And he says, here's the thing they never tell you. You can kill someone and get away with it. You're bulletproof. You're a god. Annie is thriving in this scene, though. Uh, she says, there's a question you haven't asked yourself yet. If I exist, what else does? You think you're the big bad wolf? You should see George on a full moon. You think you're a cold-blooded murderer? Mitchell was killing 80 years before you were even born. 
and he zaps his eyes for that. Don't you get it yet? I'm just the tip of the iceberg. I'm good cop. Look at you, so pleased with your grubby little murder. Fact is, when it comes to pure naked evil, you're an amateur. I want you to know you've wandered off the path. This is where the wild things are. We've got your scent now. We can find you at the edge of the earth and create unimaginable tortures. And now I'm going to tell you the very worst thing in the world. Something only the dead know. And she whispers in his ear. Afterwards she says, my advice to you, find a safe place with locks and bad dogs and never ever turn out the lights. It's an incredible scene. Lenora's brilliant in this, as to as Owen, of course. It's a common theory, but what do you reckon she whispered? I think, it, I feel like it must be something about hell. Just for the fact that she sort of does that, believe me, like, trust me, I've seen it kind of thing and just like to get invoke that reaction in him and also for him to then like you know sort of says to him like to get somewhere safe and lock yourself up and it must be something to do with that or like that they're gonna come for him for what he's done to her yeah and it's it probably alludes as well to the memory sticks and rope as well i think yeah then sort of what she thinks she says a little bit later when they're talking about purgatory and that and I think George says is it something nice or something else and she sort of said I think it's something else like and as you say with the the vampire recruitment scene earlier in the episode as well they sort of start talking about the memory sticks and rope don't they then so you kind of got all these clues that death might not be quite so nice yeah and uh, what I like about this scene I think the way Annie describes it is perfect grubby little murder because the one thing this scene does it puts Owen's actions and character in proportion because obviously he's pleased that he's killed his girlfriend and got away with it. But on the larger scale, there's potential hell and vampires and werewolves. Even though he's been incredibly evil as the series has gone on, again, a, a saying that Annie says, tip of the iceberg, he's, he's nothing in comparison to what else is in the world of being human. Yeah, it's kind of like the line Mitchell has in series two, isn't it? Like, I've, my name's John Mitchell, and I've killed more people than you've met. Kind of, like, put his things into proportion, like, compared to Owen. Like I say, it's just, like, one tiny little thing that Owen's done, even though it's a horrible thing. I love this scene. It's amazing. And despite the slight reservation I'm about to say, it's all worth it because of what that scene entails. But does Owen change too quickly from cocky and arrogant to distressed and crying and running away because yes Mitchell zapped his eyes George it's just been hinted at that he's a werewolf and obviously we don't know what Annie says is that is is are we relying too much on what Annie whispered to be the the effect that made Owen go that way yeah I suppose maybe even like I don't know if there's almost maybe she has kind of some influence over him with with her words. Like maybe it kind of she managed to find some other sort of supernatural power maybe even. Or, but yeah, it is it is quite a a quick change and like you say, it does really really goes the opposite way, doesn't he? When we see him in the next scene. What we were saying before, Owen's language is violence and manipulation and Annie still didn't do that in this scene she almost I suppose she's threatened it threatened it exactly she's threatened it so that's more uh, more of a language he understands yeah I mean he obviously knows she's a ghost 
we can kind of picture Mitchell <laughs> as a vampire. It doesn't matter because it's just an awesome scene. <laughs> it's all worth it. Um, yeah, and even better than that, Annie's first response after he leaves is to put the kettle on. <laughs> this scene, in, yeah, have after is put the kettle on and just having this chat and about the real hustle being on at eight thirty, just like completely opposite kind of vibe. <laughs> And George asked what she whispered in his ear, and Mitchell just gives her a shake of the head to, and gestured not to tell him. I mean, clearly, yeah, maybe that's like that. Whatever made is made Owen completely mad. Maybe he doesn't want that to happen to George. Now, of course, Annie is still there. No door appeared, and they discussed this. She said, "I thought there'd be fireworks. I thought the clouds would part." Distressed Owen hands himself in at the police station in fear of his safety. He's pretty blunt with what he says. I killed my girlfriend, and she lives what I think with I, I think is a vampire and a werewolf, <laughs> and they're going to get me. And the police officer, I see. Well, in that case, we're going to need a different form. I was wondering as well if that is like. Did I wonder if that got back to Herrick at some point that there was somebody raving in the police station about vampires? Oh, it's got to have done, hasn't it? It's got to have done. They're everywhere. Like like Mitchell says, they've got people everywhere. George picks up on Annie's newfound confidence and she says, yeah, it's funny what ha- defeating a whole army of vampires will do. But then suddenly, as Mitchell's about to leave, he notices something in the corner of the room and it's Annie's door which has appeared. And uh, George asks, what it, what's on the other side? Is it something good or something else? And Annie replies, probably something else. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Obviously, the fear of the situation bring that but it seemed like Gilbert had a pretty good passing over yeah and it was all like bright light isn't it I suppose do they see the men with sticks and rope again when they go through the the door yeah that might be it that might be like level one you go back into purgatory again for a bit and then then you get to pass over properly so George pleads with Annie to stay and we get the emotional goodbyes she tells Mitchell not to kill anyone and he's he's right and he says most people don't get to say goodbye and she says I know but fucking hell you might want to choose better last words than that and again this is this is alluding to what could be on the other side because nobody really knows and she says when I open that door don't look inside and at that exact moment there's a knock (laughs) but it's from the main front door it's like it becomes a tradition, doesn't it? Between like when a character sort of passing over or like about to die in other series, there always seems to be a knock at the front door. Yeah, you know what? I I came to that conclusion on this rewatch as well because obviously it happens in series three. It happens in series five. This scene had similar echoes of what happened at the end of series three. Certainly, yeah. but it just way it all ties together it's really well done so Mitchell goes to open the door and Herrick stakes him in the heart it seems he's not too late Herrick gives Vamps a bad name come on I'm here all week <laughs> in fact as well you can see him screaming let me in or ask me in at George and you just think like as if he's going to invite you in when you've just staked his best friend yeah alright mate come in have a cup of tea sit yourself down finish him off <laughs> It's just panic. Like, literally, Mitchell is writhing on the floor covered in blood. George is ordering Annie to go through the door. And it just cuts out before 
we know what decisions made and that is a cliffhanger and i mean what happens next not a clue do you reckon i should watch it probably (laughs) so yeah that is the end of episode five every series of being human had a penultimate episode that is really dark and all the you know just brooding and magnificent and this is this is definitely one of those episodes yeah i think like as you go through like say through all the series sort of the penultimate episode is always like one of the most like action-filled and like say kind of darkest and one of the stronger episodes of each series the way they tease the next episode obviously they're they're trying to convince you that annie might have gone through the door and mitchell might not be alive because you don't see any of them <laughs> you just see um you see Saki mark the vicar don't you and george oh. And Herrick, and that's pretty much all you see. But yeah, it's a good tease. Many thanks to Alice for coming on the show. It wasn't until we stopped recording that she admitted my Bon Jovi references were going completely over her head. <laughs> so uh, I hope there's someone out there who appreciates old man soft rock references. Uh, it's no secret that being human fans like to watch out for cast members and writers and things in other TV shows. So I'll just do a bit of cast watch now. Currently on ITV, uh, we're two episodes in as this goes out. Aidan Turner stars as the main character in The Suspects. Now I talked about this on a podcast called The Custard TV Podcast, which occasionally I appear on. It's TV news and reviews. Uh, go listen to it I recommend it not just because I'm on it sometimes I gave my opinion I was a bit iffy on the first episode and I still feel even more that way I would say after the second episode I think Aiden's great in it but I think the plotting and the script is letting it down a bit on totally the other end of the TV spectrum our other favorite vamp Damien Maloney stars in Brassic and this fourth series has just started on Sky I've watched it since it started I love it so much and there are people who talk about things like ah TV is too woke nowadays which let's not get onto that because that's woke as a word is complete nonsense people haven't seen a show like Brassic if they think that because it's brash it's crude it's rude it's slapstick but with all that it's still got a big heart to it as well it's it's in the first two episodes i've seen the series for just wonderful it's written by joe gilgan and danny brocklehurst and of course stars joe gilgan i thoroughly recommend brassic it's totally on the other ends of the spectrum to something like the suspect give it a go if you've got sky or now tv brassic i fully recommend damien's great in it he doesn't have a massive role but he's he's part of a a whole team of players that are just so good. And that is it for episode 7. You can become a recruit by liking and subscribing on whatever app you are on. And we'll sign out as we sign in with the brilliant Dog Scratched Ear by Henry's Funeral Shoe. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. Fucking hell. I might want to have different last words. was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks.